First of all, I want to thank Pastor Steve for covering for me for the past couple of weeks. I was probably feeling well enough to be here and preach, but we just thought um, after discussion amongst ourselves that it would be a good idea if I didn't share any lingering bugs with uh, the rest of you, whatever it was. So we hold up in our home and that's just how we conducted ourselves. Two weeks ago, Pastor Steve preached on thankfulness, which today is Thanksgiving. And so you jump the gun and I just continue with my series. But anyway, he preached on thankfulness using the story of the 10 lepers healed by Jesus in Luke 17. He reminded us again because many of us, maybe all of us, certainly need to be reminded how important it is to be thankful for all that we have seen and unseen by the grace of God. As Pastor Steve was preaching, I kept thinking about the nine lepers that were healed and didn't return. They obeyed the words of Jesus in making their way to the priest to be declared clean. So we see something of an act of obedience there. They must have been thrilled to discover that their leprosy was gone as they made their way to the priest. Considering all of the trials and difficulty they faced as lepers, I can't imagine that they weren't overwhelmed with joy to know that they could go back to their families and back to their jobs and enter society again after being segregated for however long as unclean. But it seems to me that thankfulness is one step beyond the joy experienced in answered prayer as good as that is, it seems that thankfulness needs to acknowledge someone to whom you show appreciation. It seems to me that genuine thankfulness is manifested in words or actions directed to the one who has given you grace or shown you mercy. And I think our world could use a whole lot more thankfulness. Maybe we can start that trend as Christian people. Let's not forget to express our thankfulness to God, not merely in enjoying the blessings from his hand, which we do, but in sincerely expressing our words of appreciation to him for all that he has done and continues to do. And then let our thankfulness toward God flow out in thankfulness to others as well, as we are recipients of the grace of God, even through his people. Um, I've spent the last over two weeks on what's becoming <clears throat> my least favorite spot in the house on my couch there as I'm recovering. Now, the virus itself, I don't know what it was. I didn't get tested. I was just cautious, but I was sick. It knocked me down for two or three days, and then I was back at it. But... Um, for those of you that have come by and visited, and you know why I'm struggling, and it hasn't got to do with the virus. Um, but from my place on the couch, I can see you guys when you come to the door and drop things off. I know who you are. <laughs> there was a basket placed on our barbecue. I know who you are. You can't hide. And since there's very little I could do, I just lay there and prayed for the person that came. 
and, and, and another that came and brought us a meal, not because we asked for it, not because, not because we even needed it, um, but what a tremendous blessing. It, it showed up and we were like, the evening was now free. One of God's people moved in obedience to God's spirit and blessed us. And we are truly thankful. So there I was with, I couldn't do hardly anything, but I could pray. So for the wonderful person that dropped that basket on our barbecue, yes, I prayed and prayed and prayed. Just everything I could think of for you. And for the person that, the family that brought us the meal, yeah, I just prayed. And there were others that dropped by and prayed with me. And um, I, I just think that that kind of thankfulness, expressing thankfulness, is, is good for our souls. And then last week, Pastor Steve brought another beautiful message on the invitation of God through Christ to cast our cares on him. For he cares for us. Trials will come. Difficulties will come. Pain will come. But God has not abandoned us to our own resources to bear up under these things. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He has promised to remain with us even through the valley of the shadow of death and even unto the end of the age. Some of you got a phone call. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I think I'm doing better. Are you going to be in church Sunday, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, that's too bad, because Steve has really brought some amazing messages. <laughs> I didn't know whether to take you seriously or not. That phone call was from Susan. <laughs> Steve did bring us two incredibly powerful messages, didn't he? Are we not of all churches most blessed? Thanks to this couple right here. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. Do you know what? You guys appreciate me every month whether you know it or not. Since it's Pastor Appreciation Month, would you bless that couple? Okay, before that, I began to study with you the book of Exodus. After having read the first seven verses of chapter one, I simply tried to give you an overview of the first 18 chapters, which is about the first half of the book of Exodus, ending with the tribe of Israel wandering in the wilderness after escaping Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. I gave this introduction for a couple of reasons. One. It can be helpful to understand where we are in God's redemptive history for a better understanding of the scripture as a whole. Number two, I want us to see Jesus throughout this scripture. Number three, the stories in the first part of Exodus are memorable and powerful, and we can never hear and think about them too often. So, having said that, Let's dive into the text itself. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, and we will read the entire first chapter. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, 
Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and <clears throat> they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with a simple request that your spirit guide us into worship. We desire to worship the Father. We desire to worship the Son. We, are, we desire to worship the Spirit of God. We desire to do this as you give us understanding of your word. And so we submit our hearts to you as the only one worthy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Seeds of Conflict. I've titled today's message. <clears throat> Exodus picks up the story of Genesis. Uh, Moses, as he's writing this, continues the story of Abraham and his descendants. I'm not going to spend too much time on this point as I touched on it at some length during our introduction several weeks ago, but it is certainly worth remembering that Exodus is not just a standalone story like, say, the book of Job is. Exodus is a continuation of the narrative of God's redemptive plan 
telling the story of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom God promised to bring about the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 that would crush the serpent's head and pay the price of redemption for all mankind. Moses uses words that hearken back to the earlier part of Genesis as well. Moses begins Exodus by describing the deaths of Joseph and the rest of the sons of Jacob and picking up the story of their descendants. But he goes one step further, though, by describing the Israelites as being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the land, even as God had commanded Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden. These were God's people. So now, in verse 8, the conflict begins. There's a new king appointed over Egypt. Again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but for the sake of those of you that do have some interest in biblical history, there are two major views as to who is the, who this king is. One view is called the late date, uh, which puts the exodus in the 13th century before Christ, which is the 1200s before Christ, under Pharaoh Ramses II. This is the position held by most scholars. This is usually the view taken by more liberal scholars, though, who tend to minimize or allegorize the scripture and the trauma that Egypt would have experienced as a result of the entire Exodus account, including the plagues and the decimation of Egypt's armies in the Red Sea. A difficulty with this view is that Ramses II started very strong as a pharaoh, and he just got stronger and stronger and stronger until he died at the age of 90 or 91. There's just no indication in the historical record that he had any kind of rough time of it. Egypt thrived through his reign. A major reason that some people hold this view is the mention of the cities of Python and Ramses in verse 11. And there is just no other mention of the city of Ramses until after the 1200s BC. So that's just a brief overview as to why some may hold to the late date. The early date is held more broadly by conservative Bible scholars due to the information given us in 1 Kings 6. And this would place the Exodus in the 15th century BC, which is the 1400s, 1445 BC or so, under Pharaoh Amenhotep II, in which case it would have been Amenhotep's father or grandfather that initiated the events around the slaying of the Hebrew male children. Either one of those views may be correct. They both might be wrong and it might have been someone else. Both theories have their strengths and weaknesses, but the uncertainty of who this Pharaoh was may have been accomplished by God purposefully. Psalm 9, verses 5 through 7 reads, oh, there's your, there's the two Pharaohs, Ramses II and Amenhotep. But uh, Psalm 9, verses 5 through 7 reads, You have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities, 
even their memory has perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. So this is just a reminder to us that the story of Exodus is about God. It's not about Pharaoh, and it's not about Egypt. And I'm sure that's why God, through Moses, left the names out. The seeds of conflict are brewing in Egypt. They're, they've been planted. Every conflict has its starting points. They're usually small, like seeds, and often subtle, but they tend to grow over time. The amount of heartache that can come out of a simple miscommunication, for example, can be wildly disproportionate. In the growing conflict between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, the scripture points out a couple of key seeds that lead to a full-blown confrontation between God and Pharaoh. We know from Egyptian history that there was a growing mistrust by pure-blooded Egyptians for the group called the Hiskos, who were non-pure-blood Egyptians, maybe half Egyptian and half Canaanite, that were living in Egypt and who had even controlled the throne of Egypt for a time. But scripture gets right to the heart of the matter in today's reading. The first seed of conflict is ignorance. And I don't mean this in the sense of an insult, right? Sometimes you might call someone, well, I hope you don't, but you might hear someone being called, oh, you're, being, you're just being ignorant or whatever. And not, that's not what I mean by ignorance here. I don't mean it as an insult. I mean it in the sense of simply not knowing something. If you haven't been informed of something, you're ignorant of that fact. You just haven't been informed. You just don't know. This new king, this new pharaoh, it says, did not know Joseph. He just didn't know. He was ignorant of why the Hebrews were dwelling in the Nile Delta in the first place. Would he have behaved differently if he had known that Joseph was second in command over all Egypt and the savior of Egypt through the great drought? We will never know for sure, but the Bible does make a point of stating that this new king did not know Joseph. <clears throat> so it seems this may have been a factor. This pharaoh would have been wise to seek this matter out before he plunged forward with his plans. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory <clears throat> of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And JFK, loosely quoting G.K. Chesterton, once said, and I love this, don't ever take down a fence until you know the reason why it was put up. The second seed, <laughs> I look at George right away. We were there for their wedding. There's a fence out in the middle of nowhere there. And Jin told me when I got there, yeah, just don't go on that side of the fence. <laughs> What's the big deal? Well, apparently it has something to do with a, a bull. And so anyway, uh, I did not take that fence down. Yeah, yeah. Don't ever take down a fence unless you know the reason why it was put up. The second reason is envy. When Pharaoh looked at the tribe of Israel, he saw that they were greater than the Egyptians. They worked harder. They had larger families. Their crops succeeded. 
their cattle flourished. In short, God had blessed them. This got under Pharaoh's skin. And as is so often human nature, rather than trying to emulate or copy what the Hebrews were doing so that he could bring success to his own people, Pharaoh set himself against God and his people to suppress them and to destroy God's blessing on them. One commentator wrote, When men deal wickedly, it is common for them to imagine that they deal wisely. But the folly of sin will at last be manifested before all men. Several weeks ago, my wife and I finished harvesting our garden. It did very well, and God blessed us. We had beautiful, warm weather and timely rain, and we were able to bring in some nice soil in the spring. One of the things we did was to bring in a big load of sand. And we did this because my parents, whose garden is quite sandy, they always get really nice carrots and potatoes, and ours were just never all that good. So we had a choice. We could either go to my parents' house and, for the sake of equity, destroy their garden so it was more like ours, so that you know our gardens would be about the same. And it seemed like a bit of work, but it would have been cheaper than getting sand. Or we could find out what they did and copy it. So in this case, we thought it's a better idea to just bring in sand. So we left my parents' garden alone, and we brought a load of sand into our home. In our scripture passage today, we read, But the more the Egyptians afflicted Israel, the more Israel multiplied and grew. And the Egyptians were in dread of the children of Israel. When God chooses to pour out his blessings, all the plans of those that oppose him only lead to further blessing. Albeit perhaps blessing in or through suffering. There is an ancient saying from an early church father, and I think it was Tertullian, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Pharaoh continues to increase in evil. When Pharaoh first realized he needed to do something about the Hebrews, he tried to suppress them by putting them under a hard yoke of slavery. Once he realized that this was not accomplishing what he had hoped in breaking the spirits and the success of the Hebrews, he moved on to step two. Pharaoh commanded the murder of all Hebrew male children. And he gave this command to two ladies, Shifra and Puah. These two midwives are heroes of the Old Testament. Before they had the law, before they had any scriptures, they knew enough of the character of the Lord God of Israel to know that they could not obey Pharaoh's command to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Perhaps they had heard stories of Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and others, so that they had a rudimentary understanding of the God of their fathers and a glimpse of what he was like. We can only speculate. 
But this made me think of the words of St. Paul in Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts either accusing or defending them on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Christ Jesus as proclaimed by my gospel. This passage by Paul is speaking particularly about Gentiles who were not given the law of Moses, but during the time frame of Exodus 1, which we just read, during the lives of Shifra and Pua, the law had not yet been given through Moses. Having said that, Shifra is a Hebrew name, but Pua is not. It's actually a Canaanite name. There is a chance that Pua was not a Hebrew by birth. Her name is actually Canaanite. She may have been one of these Hiskos, these mixed-blood Egyptian Canaanite people, so despised by the pure-blooded Egyptians that I mentioned earlier. Anyway, these two women recognized that the nature and character of God was a higher ethic, a higher moral obligation to obey than the command of Pharaoh to murder innocent babies. The scripture in verses 17 and 21 of Exodus 1 gives us the reason these midwives made the decision they made. It says in both of these verses that they feared God. They feared God. They knew that Pharaoh could have had them instantly put to death for disobedience. Such was his power and his authority there. But their fear of God was greater than their fear of Pharaoh. This made me think of the words that Jesus would speak 3,500 years later in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. No, I don't have it up there. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who we fear. Let's just pause together for a moment on this idea of the fear of God. We so often speak of the love of God and the mercy of God and the tender compassion of God that it can seem to speak of the fear of God can go against our modern sensibilities. But the fear of God is found throughout the scriptures and is even described as the beginning of wisdom by King Solomon. Part of having the fear of the Lord is recognizing what he is capable of should his holiness be impugned. As we just read in Matthew 10, the Lord God Almighty, the King, Jesus Christ, is not just our buddy. 
In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, the mighty king of the land is a lion named Aslan, obviously a reference to the lion of the tribe of Judah. At one point, one of the children, and I think it might be Lucy, the youngest, asks, is Aslan a tame lion? And the answer comes back that Aslan is not tame in any sense of the word, but he is good. All of us would do well to remember that we do not serve a tame God. He is holy, he is just, he is almighty, he is forgiving, and he is good, but he is by no means tame. A quick perusal of simply the Psalms shows us that when God moves in justice and wrath against the wicked, there is nothing tame about it. So anyway, the midwives saved these little ones and God honored their obedience. In fact, he even saw to it that their names were recorded and preserved for all eternity for this simple but courageous act of obedience to him. In fact, they have likely been enjoying the presence of Christ for centuries now, as evidenced for us in their simple but powerful act of faith. Not because of what they did, but because they feared God, and it transformed how they lived, in a similar way to how Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, the book of James, right? Then Pharaoh, realizing that his command to these two women wasn't doing what he wanted to accomplish, he gave the general command to all his people. In the final verse of Exodus 1, it says that Pharaoh extended the command he had given to the two midwives to all his people. Pharaoh realized that his original plan was not going to work. Whether he believed the two midwives when they explained to him why they were unable to dispose of the Hebrew boys or not, he doubled down on his command. He had made up his mind that the solution to his problem was destroying the Hebrew male babies. And one way or another, he was going to be sure that his solution was implemented. <clears throat> it must have been a heart-wrenching time for the Hebrew people. <clears throat> Hebrew people, Jewish people, love their children more than anything. The only comparison that I've heard is apparently how the Russian people love their children. Must have been heart-wrenching for them. They were already subject to bitter slavery and now they were facing the loss of their children. It must have been a time where the cries of God's people were increasingly rising up before his throne. There are few things that will drive us to our knees before the Lord more than anguish of heart. And I might add, there are few things that move the hand of God more than the anguish of one of his own. But in part, at least, it was due to the anguish of his people 
God was beginning to move. We read later on in Exodus, and I think it's in chapter 3. You can, you can fact check me on that. I believe it's in chapter 3. And the Lord God said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Rabbi John Spira Sabbat, who is a rabbi at a Jewish temple in, it's, the temple's called Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire. He gave the following words as a part of his sermon, a Jewish sermon, back in 2018. And I thought it was so interesting. I happened to run across this as I was just simply researching sort of the Christian and Jewish views of this book of Exodus. And I ran across this and I, and I just really wanted to share it with you. I just thought it was so interesting that it's coming from a Jewish perspective. Listen to this. In Exodus, God leaves heaven and comes down. Down to the Nile, to the lowest spot in the low valley of Egypt. Down from the sky into those waters of chaos and death that are carved down deep into the lowly earth. God comes down to the lowest people who are beaten and dehumanized, whose hands are muddy and blistered and broken, who are detached from their souls to the point where they can hardly do anything but groan, who can't think beyond the terrible things happening to them right now. God has to fight for them. God has to get next to them, down in the mud in their slave camps, and next to the taskmasters too, just to get any of these people to notice him. God has to frustrate the expectations of all those who think that God's only go with grandeur like Pharaoh has, the beauty and richness of his palace and the temple and architecture, and the hosts who do his bidding. As you read Exodus, it's clear that redemption, rescuing these people, takes much longer than six days. And it is a much more difficult labor than the Genesis project of making the world. And by coming down, God shows us that more is involved in being God than pure power. More than just the ability to make things and do things, God's essence is that God hurts when people hurt. And God is enraged when people stand by and go along or do nothing. So, he continues his message. When people are enslaved, oppressed, suffering, the hurt is so large that God's response to that is the largest thing that God ever does. What God does in Exodus by redeeming our people is the only thing big enough to justify the idea that God is great. God's true nature, the greatness that we associate with the notion of God 
It isn't manifest until God comes down as far from heaven as possible into Egypt. When I read this, I thought, yes, you're almost there. Can you not see that this is what Jesus did? This is the gospel. To close today with an encouragement for you, I'd like to read a passage from Ephesians 1. I'd like you to pay special attention to verses 22 and 23, but in order to get the context, I have to go all the way back to verse 15. So let's read that together. This is the word of God. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power, toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And pay special attention. Here comes verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. There isn't anything, there is nothing that isn't under the ultimate authority of Christ. God the Father has placed Christ as the head over all things so that Christ's body, the church, born of his resurrection, is given the immeasurable blessing of bringing glory to God through Christ, even through times of suffering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your spirit here in our midst this morning. We are grateful that you have called us, each one of us, to worship and that it is the greatest calling you have given to any man is to worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And so we worship you as creator and especially looking in Exodus 1, we worship you as redeemer. We have been created, we have been recreated because of Christ and his work. We pray that those that are suffering in our community, in our Christian community and broader community, that they would be lifted up because Christ has come down 
and has been lifted up for us. Help us to be a people that is faithful. Help us to be a people like Shifra and Pua that are so connected with who God is, with who you are, that we have the courage to do that which is right in your eyes. And that we would fear you more than we fear all else. And that we would walk in that fear and that fear would begin wisdom in us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.